0: I would like to read a question this morning for you. A little get a little participation before we begin. What metaphor best describes God to you? Now, let me explain what a metaphor is, since it's been probably years since you took English, right? Uh, a metaphor is an image, a picture-like image, uh, which you might use. To describe something. For example, uh, if you said that person is a warm fuzzy, that's a metaphor. Okay? It's actually a simile, but I'm, I'm using metaphor rather loosely. So if you said that, that God is an eagle, you would be using eagle as a metaphor. God is like an eagle, or God is an eagle. So, what metaphors do you like? Best to describe God. Any suggestions? Bill. God is the prodigal son. The father, prodigal the father, right? I think I preached a sermon here on that one a long time ago. He is the rock. Okay, so rock as a metaphor. What other metaphors do you like to use to describe God? yes
1: Cuddly kitten. Cuddly kitten.
0: What other metaphors? Yes. The light. The light, okay? Light is certainly a metaphor. Robert. The my lover. Okay? I'm getting everyone but what's on my list. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Years ago, they had a commercial
1: on TV for Hebrew National Hot dog, and it was Uncle Sam who said, So if we answer to higher authority,
0: higher, the higher authority, okay? Uh, yes the lamp the spirit the
1: spirit. Okay. dove
0: okay there you go
1: Yeah,
0: a warm breeze the light of the world lighthouse okay. well you still haven't come up with any of mine um, so I'll read you my list I have, on the first line, father, friend, or savior. The second line, judge, king, or slave master. Now, of all the ones we have raised, which of them draw you to God, make you want to go to him? Make you want to pray to Him. Make you want to study and learn about Him. The nice ones. Now, which ones are the nice ones? Father, okay. Savior. Friend. Friend.
1: Not judge, king, or slave master.
0: That's right. It does depend on the father that you have, because some people don't have a good father I had a student many years ago uh, sit with me in the dining commons of Pacific Union College and she said you know I have a very hard time relating to God with my father because she started telling me about her own father cold distant not warm not loving never never hugged her never kissed her never wanted to be close to her and she said, I just can't relate to God as my father. That's why there are so many different metaphors for God in the Bible, right? And all of the metaphors, just about, except some of the more contemporary ones, all of the metaphors that we raise today uh, are in the Bible. Are they done? Light, wind, uh, all of those are in the Bible. Now, what is interesting... Is that in the New Testament, the metaphors of Father or Savior dominate? Jesus reveals God as His Heavenly Father. He told us to address Him, Father, who is in heaven. In the Old Testament, what are the metaphors that dominate? The Almighty. The Almighty, okay. Uh, That's actually one of His titles.
1: Creator, okay.
0: What others? The I Am.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you're giving me names.
1: Judge. Judge, yes, God is judge.
0: What else? Executioner. <laughs> executioner. He's not called that, but it does seem to be represented. The eagle. The eagle? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, the ones that that predominate are king and slave master. Those are the two metaphors that dominate for God in the Old Testament. And the term father applies to God only 18 or 19 times in the entire Old Testament. Why? Why is God not, why is he underrepresented in the Old Testament as a father? I'm going to try to answer that question in just a few moments. Um, and, And I want you to know that when he is mentioned as a father or likened to a father, it's always in the context of mercy. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Psalm 103.13. But, the Old Testament was written over a thousand years period, and it spans the late second millennium to into the first half of the first millennium. In fact, beyond the first half. The second millennium, which is the millennium when Israel was in Egypt, came out of Egypt, went to Canaan. The second millennium is characterized socially in the ancient Near East by the house of the father. This is a term that is used in the Bible, house of the father. But it was not an endearing, warm term at all. It was an authoritarian term. It was a hierarchical term. Every male who became a head of the household, which was practically every male, bore the title father. But every father had a higher father above him. So the lowest father, who didn't have anybody below him, was the slave. And probably the lowest slave. If the family, if the household was big enough to have many different kinds of slaves, they would have uh, maybe a head slave who would be the father of all the other slaves. Okay, but so I'd be the lowest slave. Then the head slave above him. Then his master, who might be the lowest father in the household because he was maybe the youngest son. Then the father of the master, who would be either his father, his biological father, or it would be his oldest brother if the father had died. Then you had the clan father above him, the tribal father above him, and the king above them all. And that was not the end of it. Above the king, you had the patron god. I'm talking about the ancient Are now outside the Bible, the, the, the people that uh, lived around Israel, the, the God who was the patron god of the settlement of the tribe would be the father above the king. And above that God was the high God who was the father of all the gods. It's extremely hierarchical. And you had to answer to every single father of the line. If you were the lowest father, you had all those fathers top-heavy above you. That was the whole system of father. And I like to think that the reason the Old Testament does not apply the term father to God more often is because of that system. Because I want to show you that the Bible counters the house of the father especially in the book of Genesis. I don't know if any of you were here last year when we uh, talked about the covenant. But I propose to you that the Old Testament speaks in two voices. A major voice, which God adapts his will to the will of the people and meets them where they are and speaks a language they can understand. And a minor voice, that is really God's preferred will. Uh... The easiest example is the one I'm going to use today, so I'm not going to give you that example ahead of time. But, but we looked at it in terms of covenant, and we recognized that the, the minor voice is the Noah covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, before Abraham doubted. And circumcision is the major voice because Abraham doubted the covenant and had the issue it. This is uh, supported by the Apostle Paul, though he doesn't use those terms. So, what I'd like to propose to you is that Genesis contains more minor voice material because it's tied to creation, tied to the original plan God had for this planet, And so that everything you have in Genesis is really tied to God's referred will. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to start with verse 26. That's uh, chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image, in the image of God. He created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Where's the dominion? Dominion, the dominion God gives the man and the woman is over all the natural world, right? They're to rule over nature. There's a reason why it stresses this with very strong terms. You're to subdue it, and and that word subdue is a rather harsh word. Uh, The reason for this is, is because what did most people in Bible times do with nature? They worshiped it. You know what worship was in ancient Mesopotamia, for example? If you worship the sun god Shamash, you were his slave. That's your reason for existence, is to be the slave of Shamash. They allowed the natural world to enslave them. God flips that upside down and says, No, you are to have dominion over the natural world. That's why this stresses it so much. So, the first man and first woman were to have dominion over the world. In, in, in case there's any doubt, he gives it to both of them. The word them is plural. What about who rules them? Well, we say God does, right? But the significant thing about Genesis 1 is there's an absence of any human being ruled over another. There's no command about God. No human being was to exercise dominion over another human being. Why do you think that is? You know, Ellen White makes an interesting statement in Desire of Ages that the angels did not come to exercise, do not come to this planet to exercise uh, dominion and control. They come to serve, to minister. I would like to propose to you. That the model God gave the first man and the first woman is a model of taking care of the natural world. Because if you combine Genesis 1 with Genesis 2, that's what they were supposed to do, to take care of the natural world. Let it be subservient to them. But they were to do it in the same way that he governed them. And that's the question. How does God govern his people let's go so, so what we have in Genesis 1 I think is a put down on the house of the father hierarchy it's not, an, it's not part of creation it's not supposed to exist no human being is supposed to control another human being after all we are all equal in the sight of God what gives us the right to control another human being so, let's go to chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 24. This is another verse that really takes apart the house of the Father. Let me explain something about the house of the Father you need to know before we read this verse. In the house of the Father, when a man got married, say, one of the father's sons? He got married. He would take a wife. This would be a business negotiation. It was not of I fall in love with you, I want you as my wife, but no, you will make me wealthy, I will marry into your family, and this will be a nice business contract. That's how marriages were done in ancient Near So he would he would take a wife and she would have to leave her family and he would she would have to come into his compound. Most family extended families were in compounds. And he she she would be part of his family, and she would be governed by his mother. Women, how many of you would like that arrangement?
1: No,
0: thank you. no books here. Now you need to read this verse. This is uh, when the man meets his wife. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother. And cling to his wife. And they become one flesh. It's the reverse. He leaves his father and mother. Instead of she leaves her father and mother. It's the reverse. And more than that, he clings to his wife. Which means he goes her direction. As whether that means that they go to her family. Or whether that means they start a new unit. I think the intention was to start a new unit, but he goes her direction, and they become one flesh. I can ask you a, a very, uh, maybe a personal question in a sense. Is it possible to have true one fleshliness when one dominates the other?: No No. no hierarchy. Creation is about no hierarchy, no dominance, human to human, no one being dictatorial over us. And it goes on. One of the major things about the house of the father is that the firstborn son got better rights than all his brothers. He got double portion of the inheritance. So if a man had four sons, he divided his property five ways. And two-fifths went to his oldest son, and one-fifth went to each of his other sons. That's just the way it worked. And more than that, the oldest brother always got the right of the primogeniture, which was to rule the family. He was the head father. Okay. But look at what Genesis does with this. God favors Abel's offering over Cain. Abel is the younger. Though the eldest son, Abram, has to leave his family estate. That's something an oldest son would never do. Is leave the family estate. Because if he left the family estate, he was leaving his rights as firstborn. But Abram has to leave his family estate and wander around in Canaan so he loses his firstborn status. It's Isaac, not Ishmael, who gets the right of the firstborn. Jacob, not Esau. Judah, not Reuben, Levi, or Simeon. Ephraim, not Manasseh. So Genesis makes a categorical statement Against the house of the father, against that hierarchical uh, status quo. Furthermore, the rise of hierarchy is tied to the story of Babel in Genesis. Um, we won't take time to go into this in depth because of our time is not long. But you have the rise of Nimrod in Genesis ten eight to twelve as the first to be a hero an originator of the great Mesopotamian cities and kingdoms. Uh, Building a tower is a synthetic mountain. Mountains were symbols of power. And the idea of let us make a name for ourselves represents self-existence. We're going to have our own power. make our own generator of life. And uh, if you want to look that up, that's in uh, Genesis 10 and 11. <clears throat> but I'm, I'm moving quickly because this is not my main point for today. Now the first millennium in the ancient Near East saw the rise of the great Assyrian kings, Sargon II, Sanakrab, and Esarhaddon, followed by the Neo-Babylonian kings, Nabopolassar and Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, kingship was exercised long before writing was invented. So if Israel appeared in about the middle of the second millennium, writing was invented uh, early in the third millennium. If that gives you an idea, kingship has been around for probably a couple of hundred years before Israel left Egypt. Maybe longer. And in the early period... Kings mostly ruled over city-states and local areas. And occasionally they would make themselves deities. Uh, that didn't make them deities, but they tried. Some of them developed what's called hegemony. That hegemony are places uh, where more than one city unite together to make a bigger parcel, you might say, of a national uh, the second millennium when Israel comes into the scene is known as the age of diplomacy where the major kingdoms form brotherhood treaties among themselves Uh, unless you think that was a cozy friendly relationship it it appears to be on the surface but if you start peeling the layers uh, it's very bureaucratic and very hierarchical in the second millennium, especially the later half, kings began controlling more and more smaller kingdoms, annexing them as vassals and requiring them to pay tribute. It was a great uh, business venture. Annex a kingdom, then you get more wealth, and then you can be greater and more powerful, and then you can make everybody else get annexed more and more, and, and pretty soon. It's, it's like the monopoly of business today. Okay? Take uh, Bill Gates and Microsoft, for example or Apple, uh, any of those. Uh, you know, They buy out smaller businesses to get more power and more money. And that's the way ancient kings did it. In the first millennium, kings began reeling in smaller kingdoms primarily through conquest and force. And they climbed the royal mountain of supremacy. This was an age of a lot of slaughter a lot of slavery a lot of replacement because they would transplant people to keep them under control you may remember that the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians and the Assyrians transplanted a whole bunch of them and moved them to Assyria and other areas and then they took people from other areas and transplanted them back in Israel likewise Nebuchadnezzar took thousands of Jews to Babylon and transplanted them there. It's against this background that Israel becomes a nation. What kind of nation was Israel at first? Did they have a king? They were simply, a, sometimes what is called a confederacy of tribes. These tribes hung together rather loosely. Some of them were stronger and more powerful than other tribes. But, but it was a, an alliance of tribes. And God was supposed to be their king, not a human being. Right? Now the thing that's interesting about Israel is Israel is positioned right in the center piece between the two superpowers. Mesopotamia and Egypt. And as such... I believe it was God's plan that Israel exemplify the kind governorship that he wanted exercised, human to human. So they were supposed to rely on God in total trust and dependence and refusing dictatorship, sovereign supremacy, and power. The judges that God raised up were temporary saviors. They really didn't wield any scepter of power. Now let's um, move to First Samuel 8. And this is the story. I'm going to have to tell it briefly. This is the story of Israel wanting a king. Samuel's old. His sons aren't doing what they should. The people say to him, look, it's all over for you. We want a king like the nations around us. Samuel gets upset, goes to God. They want to reject me. God says, No, I'm not rejecting you. You know, you're smaller than you think, Samuel. They're rejecting me from being their king. But he said, You will listen to their voice. Now we have the major voice. God is deliberately bending his will, his ideal will of no king, to the will of the people. And he says, you need to tell them what the ways of the king will be. So Samuel does in verse 11. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one tenth of your grain and of your vineyard and give them to his officers and courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to work. He will take one tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. What's the most prominent verb in this passage? Take. take. That's kingship. Take and take and take and take. It's very self serving. What happens now to Israel as a result of having a king? Well, Solomon explicitly fulfilled this prophecy of Samuel. We maybe he didn't realize that. We kind of put Solomon on a pedestal because he built a temple. That was just part of his parade of power. Remember, David wanted the temple. God said, why are you asking me to build a temple? Have I ever asked you to build me a temple? Haven't I been content to live in a tent? Uh, God didn't want all those trappings of power because when a king builds a temple, he manages that temple. And that's what happens. There's oppression of underlings, increase of slavery, oppression of women, institutionalized idolatry and what's most important to me is that God became like an earthly king forceful oppressive and authoritarian and what happened is our an entire picture of Israel their picture of God was deformed into the light of Of someone who started all that kingship idea in heaven. And we'll come to that near the end. There's another byproduct of that. Once you believe that God is like a king. You rule in his name. And you rule like you think he is. And. That merges. Two things that God really intended to be kept separate. Religion. And state. That, that union, by the way, is best typified by if you study ancient Babylon. Ancient Babylon really typifies the merger of church and state. Kings then led Israel and Judah down the steep path toward Assyrian and then Babylonian exile. Now, if we're going to jump several hundred years into the future, Jesus comes, and he tries to reverse this trend by calling God an intimate term as Abba, and Abba means Dad or Dad. So he resurrects the father figure, the father imagery for God, as the dominant imagery of the Old Testament of the New Testament. Look at Mark ten forty-two. This is in the wake of James and John coming to Jesus and saying, "We want." We want to be first in your kingdom. Can we rule on your right and left hand? And Jesus says, you know what that means? You get to suffer. Anybody who gets to rule gets to suffer first. You have to suffer in order to rule. That should warn them about what's to happen. In verse 41, the ten find out. They're angry. Jesus calls them together. And he says to them, verse 42, you know that among the Gentiles those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. Some versions have that their great ones exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What could be more opposite than a king other than a servant? And that's the model Jesus adopts for his kingdom. He takes the king, kingdom model that was so prevalent in his day of power, and he dumps it upside down, and he says, what you are to do is not exercise authority over others. What you are to do is not control others. What you are to do is serve others. Let's move to John chapter 18. Jesus is on trial before Pilate. And the only Pilate is supposed to find an excuse to crucify him, right? So, the only excuse he can come up with, possibly, is if Jesus declared himself to be king, because if he did, that was treason. So he says to him, Are you the king of the Jews? I'm in verse 33, the last part. And Jesus asks him, Well, why are you asking me this? Did you get this from yourself or from someone else? And he said, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus doesn't say, I've done anything. He simply says, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. What king is going to unresistingly let someone take him and crucify him? But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you, and in the Greek it's emphatic, you say that I am king. But for this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify the truth. How many kings in the world, and I'm using this as a metaphor, how many kings in the world do you know that tell the truth? How many politicians do you know that tell the truth? you see what the nature of Jesus' kingdom is? It's love. Only someone willing to give up their power and serve others is someone who loves. It's the only way it works. Particularly in the face of suffering and death. So what kind of a king is God? I love this statement because to me it is the most profound statement about the character of God anywhere i found. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one can cast a pebble to the earth. But he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles, note that, the presentation of these principles, not the enforcement of these principles. The presentation of these principles is the means to be used. In other words, if we present the truth, leave it with the hearers, whether they're going to accept it or reject it, And not to enforce it. God's government is moral. And truth and love are to be the prevailing power. I'm going to bring this now to our time. One of the chief doctrines of Christianity that drives much of the political scene in America is the sovereignty of God doctrine. The belief that God is arbitrary, authoritarian, demanding dictator who can do anything he wants. And I believe this doctrine is going to play a most major role in future events. Turn to Revelation 18. The angel in Revelation 18 is one coming down from heaven with great authority. Remember what God's authority is, though. Great authority and splendor. If you were to go flip over to chapter 10, I don't recommend you do this for a lack of time, but if you were to look at chapter 10, that's the same angel that comes down in chapter 10 that begins a new movement, a final movement that is supposed to take us through the end. Babylon. Which is talking? This chapter is talking about is the opposite in Revelation of the New Jerusalem. Consequently, it is a religious entity, just as the New Jerusalem is. New Jerusalem contains God's people. Babylon contains the opposite. Babylon falls, and if you look at this. Um, In chapter 3, all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. If you go over to chapter 14, it says she made all nations drink. And some, uh, some manuscripts have she made all nations drink. When you drink wine in the ancient Near East, and wine is a symbol of blood, when you drink that, you drink a lot of slaughter. It means slaughter. And she falls, if you go back to chapter 16, no, chapter, uh, at the end of this chapter, chapter 18, verse 24. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. The ideology of Babylon is what's behind every slaughter on earth to the crucifixion of Jesus and beyond. And it also says, she fornicated the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Her fornication is with what? You see that? um, Let's see. Verse 3 in the middle, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. She committed fornication with kings. This is a uniting, again, of religion. operating on the principles of force, enforcement, control, dictatorship, and so on. What this typifies is a religious institution like the Jewish nation who rode the back of Rome, the beast, in Revelation. I believe John thought of the beast as Rome, the Roman Empire of his day he rode the back of Rome in order to crucify Jesus. They had to get Rome's permission, remember. This typifies a religious institution like that who grasped the hands of kings and alliance in order to slaughter those who speak the truth about God. And the interesting thing is that in ancient Babylonia, the wrath of kings aligned with the wrath of gods to force people into life. There's a direct correlation between angry kings and angry gods. So this is the wine of the wrath of the fornication of a religious body with kings. Of course, fornication is an Old Testament idea for idolatry. When Israel went abhorring after other gods, remember that term is used in the prophets. Israel fornicates with other gods. So what this suggests in Revelation, Revelation is steeped in Old Testament imagery and Old Testament passages. Revelation is trying to portray here that the worship of God as life and earthly king is going to lead to the union of church and state. That's why I said that sovereignty of God doctrine held by multitudes of Christians is playing a major role in shaping events in the United States currently. The best way to see this contrast is to read the fall of the King of Babylon and humility of Jesus. And I'm going to read this to you. We're not going to take the time to turn to it. In Isaiah 14, the King of Babylon it is said, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. And to the uttermost heights of of Zophon, I will ascend to the tops of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you, they ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? And the man who made the world a wilderness, who overthrew its cities, and you would not let his captives go home? All the kings of the nation lay in state each in his own turn, tomb, but you are cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. You are covered with flame with those pierced by the sword, those who descend to the stones of the pit. Like a corpse trampled underfoot, you will not join them in burial, for you have destroyed your land and killed your people. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, and humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. See the contrast? Complete emptying oneself for others with I will be, I will do, I will. Many Christians justify the Babylonian conception of God on the basis that while Jesus had to take the Philippians 2 way to die for us, someday he will take the Babylonian way and come back and destroy the wicked. It's crucial, therefore, as Seventh-day Adventist, as Christians, to know God, really know him for ourselves, or we may find ourselves on a side we never dreamed we'd join. It is crucial for how we treat others, how we vote, what we decide about church, political and social issues. More importantly, it's crucial to know God as he really is. Because according to John 17:3, 3, in Jesus' own words, this is eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we know that we face uncertain times that call for certain measures. We ask that you will guide us and direct us to you. Because looking around us is not going to help us. But fastening our eyes on you and coming to know you personally through your word is our only safety and our hope. We believe Jesus is coming back soon. And we ask only that we welcome Him as the kind of person He always has been and always will be. In your name, amen.